morning, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you're here. Yes, indeed. Okay, you guys, so we are going to be this morning, we're not going to do a new book. If you've been here, if you've been coming, then you know that we're doing one New Testament book a week. And last week, we looked at 1 Timothy. This week, we're going to look at 1 Timothy again. Um, and so... Bob Blacksmith, I just made like 35 extra copies in case you didn't get one last week. If you got one last week, then refrain from taking one this week, please. But if you didn't get one last week and you want one, Bob's got him. He'll, Bob's this guy in the green sweater. He's running around. He'll hook you up for last week's. Um, some folks in the back. Becky, grab those. And then we'll get started. I'll tell you what we're doing as Bob gets those scattered about. And I'll just tell you, while Bob's doing that always every week, there's this accordion folder briefcase thing up here, and that's got every lesson we've ever done for these New Testament summaries. So if you want to grab one, you can grab that now or later, whatever you want. All right, you guys about ready? If you were here last week, then you, know, you may have noticed a couple things. One, that the microphones are broken. And so I'm avoiding using the over, I mean, I'm wearing an over the ear, but I'm not using it. And we're going to go handheld. But the problem with the handheld is that I forget. And then it drifts, right? And then you, so you can always just rebuke me throughout the hour. Just say, eat the mic. Okay, just, you can remind me and maybe I'll, maybe I'll remember. Second thing you may remember or noticed if you were here last week is that we didn't really finish, okay? What we did is we looked at 1 Timothy, and we did what we always did, which is just a broad overview. But 1 Timothy is a, it's a book very interested in doctrine. It's very interested in getting things right. And it includes some pretty spicy passages, some pretty confusing passages. And we began to talk about that, but we didn't really finish. And I left it ambiguous, I left it with an, I wasn't sure if we were going to move on to the next book, which my plan is to do Philemon. We'll do that. We're going to do that. I think we have class next week. I think we do. Yeah, we're going to do Philemon next week. Or I was either going to do, just going to like move on or we're going to stay here. But I got some requests to not move on, but to kind of finish looking at these confusing passages. And so that's what we're going to do. And so if you happen to be just kind of airdropping in and you, and you don't kind of have the context, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, and it's going to be, well, I'll just read it to you. This is the passage we're going to explain. We'll be talking about it. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it begins at verse 11. And it says this, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and with propriety. So there's that, right? So this is one of those passages that has caused an enormous amount of confusion and frustration and disagreement and debate. Um, and so what I told you guys last week is when you find the strange texts, don't just turn the page, right? We have a very strong ability to say, I don't know what that means, therefore, it must not mean anything. 
and we just turn the page, right? Are you familiar with this phenomenon? And we don't want, I don't want to do that. We don't ever want to just be like, well, I don't know, shrug our shoulders, move on. We want to slow down and take a look at it and see what it says. So we, there's a couple other weird things in 1 Timothy 2 that we didn't get to, but I'm not sure if we'll get, I think this might be about enough for one day. So we're going to go after this. So as always is our pattern, before I tell you what I think is going on here, and I think the rules that we should follow to really make good sense of what God says in his word, what do you guys think of that passage? What do you think it means? What does it sound like? What have you heard? Um, and I'm not, gonna let, I'm not gonna let you guys talk the whole hour because then we may not land the plane at all. But I'd love to hear, like, coming out of the gate, anybody wanna like open the bidding on what was Paul meaning to communicate with all this? I'd love to hear your sense of it all. Andy, you wanna come up? You can co-teach this with me? You sure? Okay, good. Gary? a woman to teach. Okay, so you're saying that you think that what Paul is offering here is a private word, but in some way maybe not bringing divine authority to that comment? He didn't say, thus says the Lord, a woman is not allowed to be a college professor. Okay, okay. So, all right, so I think what that's, maybe the unspoken thing is that a surface level of this is that all women should be silent. As soon as you walk through this door, like everybody button your lip, right? That there's something about that that, you find either distasteful or unlikely to be true. And so you're saying, well, maybe he didn't mean that as, as universally as it might sound. And maybe he was just speaking out of personal conviction rather than really scripture at this point, okay? Some people have, some people have had that same sense of like, ah, what I think it says, it can't say, so let me find an alternative. I don't think that's ultimately true. I think that all scripture is God-breathed. I think that that is scripture, and it comes with that divine authority. Paul doesn't usually do that, but I do think we want to make sure we get it right, so this is good, but, and I thank you for having the courage to start. Robin? Wait, wait, be a, li- be a little bit louder, please. Paul says about marriage. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah, okay. So Robin is observing this phenomenon that Gary has said about, like, there are, there are places, in 1 Corinthians in particular, where Paul says, thus, uh, thus saith the Lord, and then thus saith me, where he, he does very explicitly draw a distinction of saying, well, this is kind of my take on this, but I'm not speaking kind of in it with it. There's a place where he does that. That's true, um, although what, what he's actually, uh, we're, not, we're not teaching 1 Corinthians 7 right now, so we're not going to do that, but you're right, that's a phenomena, but that's, we don't see the tags for that happening here in 1 Tim 2. Okay, Virgil. At a minimum, I think he's saying that there are different roles between the genders, uh, both in marriage and in the church. Beyond that, I'm not, I'm sort of in the camp, I don't get it all. Okay, this is great. So Virgil, what, in case you couldn't hear Virgil, he's saying that it seems like at a minimum Paul is making an affirmation or he's functioning out of a, a worldview that affirms that there are distinct roles for men and women in the family and in the church. And then beyond that, I'm not sure because it seems like maybe he's saying, it, it appears that he's saying more than that and I'm not sure what to do with the more of that. Okay, it's great. Yeah, Marty? Alan and I were talking, when you look at a single word, it just doesn't make any sense at all. You try to then expand the lens a little bit and say, what does Paul say about women in other circumstances? That's great. We know that women were, we know that they had a role 
So where it looks like in its finite look like there's no wall, they have to be quiet. So we Okay, great. So in case you couldn't hear that, Marty's saying, if you look at, if all we had on, from Paul on the roles of women was just these, you know, th two or three verses, then it would, it might leave us with a very narrow take. But if we broaden it out and say, what is, what do we know about Paul and what has he said in other contexts? What is, what do we see as his pattern of behavior regarding women in ministry, which is really what this passage is about, then it, it, you could say that it constrains, or you might say that it expands the possibilities of what he could mean here, and I think that's right. I'll have, I'll have more to say about that in a minute. Tommy? Um, I was looking at the passages more stated on men than on women, um, because he, he talked about the Garden of Eden, and this was a specific moment, not when Eve was speaking out of turn, but when Adam was noticeable silent. Mm. And so if he's not permitting women to be teaching, then by necessity, he's requiring somebody else to stand up. He's requiring men to be men to stand up. <laughs> That's very interesting. Tommy, what Tommy's saying is this is, he sees a, as much of this instruction as an obligation of men as a prohibition for women because when Paul cites Genesis, when he, Paul, when he cites the fall, what was going on in the fall was the silence of Adam, the neglect of Adam. And so Adam's silence or Adam's passivity in the garden is a major contributor to Eve's foolish decision. And so he want, Tommy is just kind of wondering aloud, could this... Could this, in saying that women ought not to, is that really just the flip side of the coin to call men out of their passivity to step up and to play the role they're supposed to play? Okay, it's great. Zach, you get the last shot, and then I'll start to try to glue it all together. brings more questions, especially when you take into account Proverbs 31, 10, and 11. For who, who can find a virtuous wife for her for more than far above rubies? The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. Right. How do you compare that with Right, okay. So Zach is pointing out kind of a famous passage that is about women, although even that is a little bit misunderstood. Proverbs 31 is ultimately about wisdom. Woman is personified as wisdom. But we could, we could find plenty of places in Scripture that affirms the roles of women. And so anything the Scripture says in one place will, this is really important, will not be contradicted in another place. And so how do we make sense when we have what we call an antinomy, that means an apparent contradiction, how do we resolve it? What do we, what do, we do with that, okay? And that's pretty similar to what, what Marty was saying. All right, Kelly Sue. Well, in regards to what Zach brought up, the, I think the distinction there is that Genesis is talking about her Okay, that's a really, so I'll just try to restate what Kelly's saying there. So very, very often when we approach the scriptures, and this happens regarding women, but it also happens regarding all people, is that we have a tendency to overlink value and role, okay? So we'll say, if you have a superior role, meaning you have more authority, then you have superior value. And that is a faulty equation, all right? And the, our, our, the, the chief way that we see the absolute inviolability of this is that Jesus has a subordinate role to the Father. He says, I've not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And yet, the Son is equal in value to the Father. So it is possible, and in fact, it is necessary that you can have subordinate role but equal value. And so very often when we get, to, when we get into a, a question about are there any constraints or obligations on the roles of men or the roles of women, 
that when we translate that in our mind to, yeah, there's, a subordinate, there's not just a subordinate role, but there is a subordinate value, we're off the path, and that's going to make it very hard for us to gladly accept a subordination and role when we know our own value is not being diminished, right? So that's, that's a really, really important principle. Okay, let me, let me kind of take all this stuff and glue this together. Whenever we're coming to the scriptures, it's necessarily the case, especially literally in the epistles, that you're reading somebody else's mail, right? Now, we are recipients of this because the scripture has two authors. It's not only, this is not only a letter from Paul to Timothy, but it is also a letter from the Lord to you. And so I don't want, to, I don't want you to over-realize the fact that it's, you're reading somebody else's mail, but it was also literally written from Paul to Timothy. And what that means is that Timothy knew things that you don't know, right? Paul wrote to Timothy and Timothy knew Paul. He had a relationship with Paul. He had shared time with Paul. And what that means is that Timothy has a distinct advantage over us in understanding this letter because he knew what Paul thought about women in ministry. He knew what Paul, he knew he had seen and directly observed. He'd experienced these. He'd had conversations with them. He'd been in ministry opportunities. He was very familiar with those things. And so when we come to these letters, and we should do this all the time, but we're particularly incentivized to do so on these passages that are tricky, that are difficult, or that are confusing, is before we jump into just kind of going, kind of the narrow framing, Marty, on this, just this verse, is we want to zoom out and be like, okay, how would Timothy have understood this? And Timothy's understanding of this would be shaped by what he knew to be true about Paul's view of women, okay? So let's do that. Let's give that a minute. What do we know about Paul's view of women in ministry outside of this passage that Timothy also would have known and that would have colored and shaped his experience and understanding of Paul's true meaning. Do you understand the process there? So what else do you know about Paul's view of women in ministry, his practice of women in ministry? Kelly Sue? All right, so that's, isn't, that, isn't that interesting? Even if we just limit ourselves to, uh, to his letters to Timothy, if we were to go to 2 Timothy, um, and take a look at what he's going to say here as he begins this letter uh, to Timothy about two women in his life. He's going to say, let's see, where is this? Um, Verse 5. Uh, where's it, bro? What, yeah, yeah, chapter one, verse five. Timothy says, I am reminded, this is 2 Timothy one, verse five. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also, right? Timothy learned the gospel from his mother and from his grandmother, which we can presume with high degree of confidence were women, okay? And, uh, and then he's gonna say later on, um, listen to this, go to chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Who were those from whom Timothy learned it? When he was an infant, who was teaching Timothy the scriptures? His mother and his grandmother, okay? So Paul knows, Timothy knows that Paul has seen the transfer of biblical information from one person to another in Timothy's own life at the hands of women, okay? That's one of the factors he knows. It's great. What else? What would Timothy know Paul knows about this? What he thinks about this? How he practices in this? Yeah. I think of Priscilla and Aquila and how they work with Paul. Yes, okay. So... 
Very good. Okay, so if we look at, so famously, we'll take a look at this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, they are this godly couple. Let me see, do I have any notes? I don't know if I bothered to jot down their names. Uh, yeah, so Acts 18 is, now this isn't a letter from Paul, but you got to know Luke, the hero of Luke's life, is Paul. Luke loves Paul, and Paul is very often with Luke in these missionary journeys. And when Luke records the way this whole thing carries out, in Acts 18, 26, it says that Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately, right? So Priscilla and Aquila together are become teachers in Apollos' life. Um, where else do you see? Other places where you see Paul affirming and utilizing women uh, in the role, in different roles for ministry. You have other places you'd go, Kelly. Romans sixteen is a great kind of amalgam of things. If you look at it, it's the it's the unfortunately Romans turn there. Romans sixteen is the is the is one of the parts of the Bible that you might stop reading before you get to it. Okay, because you've got all of this glorious doctrine in the first you know eight to nine, ten chapters, depending on how you count it. And then you get from chapter 12 on, you've got all the great application. And then chapter 16 is all just like straight up, like personal notes that feels to be a very low relevance, okay? But it's not, all right? So all scriptures God breathed. So let's go there. Go to Romans 16. And we can make a lot of observations here. He's basically writing, Paul's never been to Rome, but Rome's like New York City. And uh, how many of you know somebody who lives in New York City? Okay, it's like that, okay? There's just people come, like people move through, they're here, they're there, they move through. And so he knows a lot of people in Rome. In, in Rome. Listen to this. He says in verse one, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria, and I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been the benefactor of many people, including me. This might not be obvious, but what does that mean? What is he saying? What, what do the recipients of the letter to Rome know about Phoebe? Did Paul trusted her. Paul trusted her to what end? The point of that she's the one delivering the letter and probably had memorized it and was probably going to be speaking. And all we don't know that, but that was the SOP. This is exactly right, okay? So when, when he says, I want you to receive Phoebe uh, in a way worthy of the Lord, that's because she's just showing up. And what she's showing up with is Romans in her pocket. She is the mailman, okay? She is the deliverer of this letter. And as the deliverer of this letter, she's pro the first time in Romans, the greatest thing ever written in the history of the world, the first time it was ever read was almost certainly in a higher tenor. It was read by a woman. It was read by Phoebe. She shows up and she delivers this message to Rome. And Paul says, yo, be nice to Phoebe because I love this woman. She's been incredibly useful. She's incredibly helpful to me, okay? We start there in Romans 16. And then we keep going. Priscilla and Aquila, all right? Greet them, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. If you keep going through, we can see a whole bunch of names. Verse six, greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Now, Andronicus and Junia in verse seven, it's unclear if those are, if, if Andronicus is certainly male, Junior may or may not be male or female. We just don't know. It's, it's ambiguous, but might be a woman, okay? If you scroll down through, we're gonna find uh, verse 12 explicitly. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women 
who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who's been a mother to me too, okay? You can go down to verse 15, greet, um, I don't know how to say this, Philo, Logus, Julia, Neresis, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the people who are with me. It's filled with both men and women that were co-workers of Paul, that were engaged in the ministry of Paul, right? all over the place, including most preeminently Phoebe, the deliverer of Romans, okay? So Timothy knows this. When Timothy gets this letter and he's gonna interpret it, we haven't gotten there yet, and we're not, here's, hear this, what we're not attempting to do is erase this. Paul meant something. We wanna figure out accurately what did he mean. We will not be a church that like crosses out the parts of the Bible that we don't find comfortable, okay? It means something. We just wanna figure out accurately what does it mean? And understanding Paul's vantage point on women in ministry is highly relevant as we seek to be accurate in understanding what's going on. We doing all right so far? Okay, there was a hand back here somewhere. Harry? Yeah. This, this goes back. All the women you just mentioned were preaching and teaching of God. But weren't the women of Ephesus, uh, they didn't like authority, they didn't like the subjugation that they, they saw. Okay, so what Harry is saying, okay, this is great. We're looking at, we're seeing what Paul thinks about women in ministry, and Romans 16 is a great place to mine that. But Harry is saying, but shouldn't we also be concerned about the local context in Ephesus? Timothy's the pastor in Ephesus. What was going, and Timothy doesn't just know Paul, but Timothy knows his own version of Roanoke. His own, he knows what's going on. And so remember, I've said this before, that the letters of the New Testament have an attribute. We call them, in fact, Harrison just mentioned this the other day in a Bible study we were in together. What is this attribute of the letters that we've got to always keep in mind? They are occasional. And occasional does not mean intermittent. It does not mean like sporadic. What it means is... That's right. Somebody wrote it to somebody else for a reason. There was something going on in the life and context of the recipient of that letter, and we kind of have to reverse engineer. What was the problem to which Timothy is, or the, to which Paul is offering a solution? Okay. And what Harry is doing is he's putting his finger on. Wasn't there something going on in Ephesus that the women were kind of getting out of hand, and that Paul was writing to correct that? And the answer to that is yes, you're exactly right. And Timothy knows more about it than we do, but we can still get a few clues. One of the ways you can get a clue about that is if you go toward the, later on in 1 Timothy. Do you remember what he says? There's a very extended passage about widows, right? And in particular, that they're being generous to widows, but a little bit prematurely. And what he's going to say is this. Um, go down to chapter 5, verse 11. He says, as for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desire overcomes their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. They bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel the younger women to marry, have children, manage their homes, give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Now, uh, there are other places in this letter we're not going to look at for the sake of time where he's critiquing the specific failings of men. Men are failing, women are failing. And in all of his letters, he just constantly puts his finger on it. Hey, stop that. Don't do that anymore. 
get along, stop saying things that aren't true, and all of his letters. But it seems that here in Ephesus, and similarly in Corinth, there were... Um, there's had some, had some band of women had gathered up that were just causing all kinds of mess, and he's, Timothy knows that. And part, it doesn't explain the entire story, but part of the story is to understand that. Okay, very, very good. Lily? So Ephesus, the goddess that they primarily worshipped was Artemis, right? Yes, that's right. Fertility, and so she was the one people, my understanding is that people would actually pilgrimage there in order to be under her protection in the course of childbirth, but also... Note, at least it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that all of the letters that Paul writes where there are express admonitions for women are to Greek congregations. That is true. Whereas you don't find that in the Roman or Jewish congregations, and thus indicating that he's correcting different issues. Great. All great insight, Lily. So Lily's pointing out, this is pretty important. In, in Ephesus, so, you know, I mean, the Greeks were basically, you know, they had a million gods, or they're polytheists. There's a scene you find in, in the book of Acts where Paul goes to Ephesus, and, and the crowd shouts for, like, literally for hours. Do you remember what their refrain was that they just kept repeating? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That's it. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of, I mean, for hours they just carry on like this, right? Drowning out the preaching of the gospel. And so it does make sense that here in this particular community in Ephesus, they have a deified woman who they are very, very fond of. And this, you can imagine kind of the distorting impact that that could have, right? So local context matters. Not, none of the, these are all clues. None of these answer the question. But these are all clues that help us get us on the right track to, to go after it. Let me give you one more that you guys just haven't mentioned for the sake of time. How are we doing? Oh. And that is uh, in Corinthians, in the letter to the, to the Corinthian church, Paul explicitly affirms female what's? Do you know? Prophets, okay? So if you look here, if you want to flip to it, he's talking about the, the, the ways that prophecy must be carried out. And he's going to say uh, in chapter 11 that every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I preached on this a couple, I don't know, maybe a year ago. What's going on with this head covering thing? But what you can see there in 1 Corinthians 11, he is, he's granting, he's legitimizing, the, 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 he's affirming female prophetesses. And that is consistent, of course, with Acts 2, which says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In Acts 21, there's a man who has four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay. So we have, you have all kinds of places where we see women having significant roles, both, hear this, both inside the walls of a church and outside the walls of a church, right? Paul knows it. Paul affirms it. Timothy knows that. And he is going to have all of that in his mind when he reads Paul saying what he's saying, right? Now, he might also know that in that same letter, it's just interesting, Lily's observation like to the Greeks, in that same letter to the Corinthians, he said something very similar to what he says here in 1 Timothy. In 1 Corinthians 14, 33, he says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, listen to this, as in all the congregations of the saints, so that's broad, right? Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And notice, he said, 
as in all the congregations of the saints. He is saying it to the Greeks, but he's saying it broadly. So you have this prohibition here in 1 Corinthians 14 on the heels of an affirmation of women being prophets just three chapters earlier, and then you've got this universe of women that have significant roles. And it is our job to take this all together and say, okay, so what now? What is the answer that makes sense of all of this disparate information? And we don't get, we do not get to ignore the parts that we don't like. We don't get to ignore the parts that don't fit into our narrative. You guys live in a world driven by narratives, right? You know the media can choose to tell you this story but not tell you this story. They want to give you part of the story so that you will believe their story. We don't get to do that. We get the whole narrative. And whatever answer we come up with has to make sense of the totality of what God has revealed. That is the difficulty of our task. That's why we say that the Bible rewards diligent study because it requires diligent study. You with me? All right, Kelly? Uh, the, the first Corinthians 14 passage where he's requiring in all congregations women be silent. You have to, you have to acknowledge that the greater context of that, those three verses is in, a, is in a, the occasion where Paul's addressing that the Corinthians order of worship because they're their order of worship had become so disorderly and chaotic that he was kind of refining that. And so it's, it's couched in that context. And so, it, and again, you have to understand that three chapters earlier, he does permit them to prophesy. So it's not, it, it's more about the disruption that women in that context might have been creating if they're doing it in a, 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 a disorderly way or, a, I don't know, you riff on it. Yeah, okay, that's great. So uh, Kelly's just, she's making the point that just like in Ephesus, there was a specific problem that, that Paul was writing to, he's writing to, into a context to say, this thing's getting out of hand, tighten this up. In, in Corinth, there similarly was, they were just going crazy on all the supernatural stuff. Like Corinth is the place where we get the best teaching on prophecy, tongues, and these kind of things. And it's because the Corinthians were jacking it up. And so he's got to write into that to, to speak to that and bring a solution, okay? So for the sake of time, we get, and I want to get, we haven't even gotten to the childbearing thing, so, and my clock is ticking here. So let me say this. What do we do with all of it? Here's, the way, here's what I would encourage you to do. It's not meaningless, okay? So we start there. We're not going to say, well, whatever, blow it off. But nor can it possibly be as absolute as it might seem at first glance, Right? It can't be absolute because we've already affirmed female priests, I mean female prophets in numerous ways. Right? I, I think we specifically do not affirm female priests. I can explain that in a second. Um, given the roles that he's given women to play, just hang out in Romans 16. It can't be that. So what do we do? I think it's this. And I'm going to actually quote from a document that I'll make available to you guys. Um, there is an organization called the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, CBMW. For my money, those guys are the gold standard on these sorts of questions. It was started by Wayne Grudem and John Piper, two very, very thoughtful theologians who I admire a great deal. Doesn't mean I agree with everything everyone has ever said or done, but I really think when it comes to exegeting the scriptures, they are generally very trustworthy people. They started this organization, CBMW. You can go to cbmw.org and look at it. And there is a document that Bob has, and it's just called 50 Questions on Something. I, mean, I just printed 25 copies of it because it's like 30 pages long, and I didn't think everyone would want it. But they will be available. In fact, Bob, we'll just put them up here at this front table, okay? So I'm going to quote a brief passage from them on this. And here's what they said about this. They said, and I'm just excerpting this short, brief part. He says, they say, in other words, what Paul is calling for is not 
the total silence of women, but a kind of involvement that signifies in various ways their glad affirmation of the leadership of the men that God has called to be guardians and overseers of the flock. Okay, what that is, that, that statement, that affirmation is really related to something Virgil said earlier on, that there are other passages in the scripture that I think are pretty clear that God has reserved the primary roles of authoritative teaching of the scriptures to men. That's why in this context, in an Anglican context, we gladly affirm female deacons because I believe the scriptures gladly affirm female deacons. We do not gladly affirm female priests because it seems to me very clear that the rules for elders, presbyters, or bishops, episkopos, is, is restrained, constrained in the scriptures to men. I think there's a reason that God uh, had Jesus call 12 men to be disciples and clearly had women engaged in ministry. Jesus was supported by, I mean, literally, look at the opening uh, paragraph in Luke, uh, shoot, eight, is it eight? Luke eight, where Jesus is, his whole ministry is supported by women. There's all kinds of roles for women. There's all kinds of places where women are serving. But he has reserved primary leadership in the family and the church for men. I think that what, what the CBMW guys are saying, and I think they're exactly right, there is a sort of, of silence, it's not an absolute silence, but there is a particular role that men are to play and that women are to play, and he seeks to affirm that in numerous places, even as he invites and blesses and praises God for and depends upon the meaningful contributions of women in numerous contexts. It is not an absolute silence by any means. It couldn't possibly be, but it's not meaningless. God has reserved the primary teaching and authoritative leading of his church to men, and he has placed men in a chief position of primary leadership. Kelly and I lead our family together. We lead our children together, and I could not possibly do it without her. But in the final analysis of all things, God will hold me accountable for my family in a way that he does not hold Kelly accountable. Not that she has none, but I have a primary role. That is true in families and in churches, and I think that Paul's, if we made a total picture of all that Paul is saying, that's the conclusion that you would come to. Now, if, and I'm going to bias this to those of you that would say, I'm not sure that I buy that. I would like you to, have, I'd like you to grab a copy of this document. And if we run out, I'll print more, okay? These guys walk through 50 questions about this. It's so thoughtful. And they have, it'll take a lot longer than I have time to walk through this. I'd love you to grab a copy of this. Every time I look at this and reread the way that they, they work through things, I'm just so impressed by their thoughtful, gracious um, clarity with which they execute the scriptures on these questions. CBMW.org, this printed document, grab them, and if we run out, I'll make more, okay? Now, I've got like five minutes, and we haven't even gotten into childbirth, okay? So let me do this. Uh, if you feel like we've gotten out of it, look at verse 15. I mean, for crying out loud, this is verse 15. It says, uh, I've already lost it. It says, but women will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and with propriety. Like, my goodness. Thank you, Paul. All right? What are we to make, what are we to do with that? Here's what I want you to notice, and forgive me if I go a little bit quick. There's more ambiguity to this statement than you might have initially noticed. There's all kinds of ambiguity. What does he mean by saved? Does he mean forgiven of your sins and granted eternal life? Does he mean rescued from physical harm? What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean when he says through? Prepositions, especially in Greek, are stretchy things. Does it mean you're saved by childbearing? 
It might mean that you're saved from childbearing, you're saved through. What does that mean? Even childbearing, does that mean giving birth? Does that mean raising children? Does it mean something else? Who is the they? What's the antecedent? If they continue, is it the mothers continue? Is it the children that continue? Is it the women that continue? What is, what is it? There's all sorts of things that are ambiguous, and there's something that's not ambiguous but hidden. There's an invisible detail that you'd never see it in English. But did you know? In fact, throw this up. Throw that first slide up, Virgil, if you don't mind. I don't even know if you'll be able to see this, but this may be. Oh, ah, yep, back. Yeah, it's beautiful. We're going to get to there. Hang on. No, no, it's okay. It'll. Oh, is it not working? Oh, okay, this, okay. So what that is, that's 1 Timothy 2.15. That's our verse. And it's, that's in the, the Greek is the top line that you can't read. And then the gloss is right below it. That's just a little thing. And what you might notice, if you look over to the part that I have highlighted in blue, right, is that there's a definite article in front of childbirth. What it more literally says is women will be saved through the childbirth. Uh. Isn't that interesting? Now, I am nothing close to a Greek scholar, not even close at all. But I I have friends who are, and I am told that this does not necessitate, but it makes possible, like according to the Greek grammar, it makes possible that he's not just talking about all nine billion times that somebody has given birth, but it's referring to a particular time that somebody gave birth which is interesting, okay? So again, without walking through everything that it might possibly mean, I think we can do this. We can rule out. It does not mean, 100%, it does not mean that we're gonna completely set aside everything the Bible says everywhere else and is teaching that women will have their sins forgiven and be granted eternal life if they get pregnant, carry the child to term and give birth, okay? There is zero percent chance that that is what it means. Can we agree on that much? We're going to rule that out, okay? It doesn't mean that. I think it means this. I think Paul has just said some difficult things, and he knows it, right? He has just put his finger on the fact that there's a bunch of women doing a bunch of stupid things, and they need to knock it off because it's harming the gospel. He says this often to men as well, okay? So don't feel singled out. In this particular moment, he's going after the women. Sometimes he's going after the men, The New Testament, for instance, usually it lays the breaking of the world at the feet of men. If you go to Romans chapter 5, it's going to say, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And this way, death came to all men, right? But the next verse is, Adam sinned by breaking a command. We usually blame the breaking of the world on men. But if you go and you actually watch the tape, Eve is the one who had this conversation. And in this moment, in this particular description of it, Paul blames Eve. And that is demoralizing. Romans 5 is demoralizing to men. And 1 Timothy 2 is demoralizing to women. And although I think this next verse of the childbirth thing, it is weird. And we're like, what are you talking about? I think that what Paul is doing is he is softening the blow. He's saying, all is not lost. And we are not without hope. It's a little bit like what C.S. Lewis does uh, in kind of near the end of The Magician's Nephew. There's a li- in that case, the, the Adam or the Eve, if you will, was a boy named Diggory. And Diggory led to the breaking of Narnia. He admitted the snake, the witch, into, the, into this new world. Listen to what, listen to what Lewis says to, to them. He says this. You see, friends, 
that before the new clean world that I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought hither by the son of Adam. The beasts, even strawberry and all, turned their eyes on Diggory till he felt that he wished the ground would swallow him up. But do not be cast down, said Aslan, still speaking to the beasts. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off, and I will see to it that the worst of it falls upon myself. In the meantime, let us take such order that for many hundred years this shall be a merry land in a merry world. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. And he gives Diggory a task, okay? Paul is communicating a similar message, I think. It's a message of reassurance. He is invoking the language of the curse from Genesis 3, in which Adam and Eve both had a part to play in the ruination of all things. Listen to this. We're going to start Genesis 3, just in verse 10, where God is interviewing Adam and Eve after they fell. Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit to eat from the, from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Hear this. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That last bit, that verse 15, that's what we call the proto-euangelion. It's the proto-gospel. It is the first depiction of the atoning work of Christ. It is the first hint of God's plan to redeem. And the details are vague. All we know at this point is that a woman is going to give birth to a male son. And this male son will kill the snake. And in the process, himself be killed. Right? That is the first hint. The details are going to get played out over centuries to come. You may have seen this image before. Virgil, you may have thrown up the, Adam, the Eve and Mary shot right there. This thing tends to show up around Christmas. Because just like Adam blew it in Romans 5, we hear that the new Adam has come to do well what the old Adam did badly. In that same way, Eve blew it. But a new woman would come who would give birth to the promised son, and it won't always be so bad. I think that Paul is saying here that though men share in the shame of Adam's sin, so do the women. We share in Adam's sin, we share in Eve's sin, but all is not lost. That the childbirth that was promised to happen has in fact happened. It has come. And this child that was promised long ago saves us all. Look at the details here, you guys. Just, just take a look at that for a minute. What you'll find, you see Eve is downcast in her shame with the fruit in her hand and the snake wrapping itself around her leg. 
And there is Mary consoling her, holding her hand and holding her hand, right, against her own abdomen to feel the baby that grows within. While Mary is depicted as crushing the serpent's head. Now, of course, it's not Mary that's going to crush the serpent's head. It is the son that she is bringing forth. But she has a crucial role in that. And then notice the gaze. Look at Eve's gaze at Mary's, not Mary's face, but Mary's abdomen, which contains a womb, which contains a baby that Mary will adore like every mother loves her baby, but who will be brutally killed to atone for Eve's rebellion. And thereby, we can all be saved, men and women, as we continue in faith and love and with holiness. You guys, a man and a woman were both involved in the breaking of the world. And a man and a woman have each had a role in the redemption of it. And as Lewis says, I will see to it that the worst of it falls on myself. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. I think that what Paul is saying to these women that he's just kind of slapped and smacked and said, stop it, is, but hang on, don't be downcast, right? All is not lost. There is a role that we all have to play in the redemption of the world. And we, it's crucial that we play our roles well. Kelly, did you want to add something, babe? I think that's, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think that when we invoke this language, of the, what Kelly's pointing out is that the particular curse for, the, for Mary, I'm sorry, for Eve, was childbearing. Like, it is through childbearing that the redemption will come, and, but childbearing is going to be painful, right? And I think it points to the, the very nature of our redemption is painful. It was painful for Eve. It was painful for Mary, and it's been painful for many of you, right? And so, and so it is that God has made a world in which there can be suffering and pain. And one of the reasons that there is suffering and pain in this world is so that, there, so that the Messiah could come and suffer and die for the atonement of the world. And that's what's happening here. I think he's telling us, you guys, don't be downcast. Yeah, the world is broken. And we add to the breaking of it all the time. And yet all is not lost. For the men and for the women, there's a role that we play. Um, okay, we got to stop because I'm long again. Now, let me say this. You want to grab one of these documents, grab them. I think it's so brilliant, it's wise and insightful. I hope you will. If we run out, I'll make more. Second thing, real quick, personal note. Um, I have like 500 different jobs and I need to tell you about one of them, okay? One of my jobs is as soon as this class is over, I got to go over to the ramp and greet and welcome people in. And we think it's incredibly important that we be a friendly and welcoming church. Every Sunday, I get inundated by people that want to talk to me after class, and I can't get over here. And it puts me in its really strong personal tension, because every pastor's job is to persuade every individual that they are the only individual, and I have all the time in the world for you, right? <laughs> but I don't, actually, really genuinely don't. So I'm going to put this microphone down every week and run to that ramp before you can talk to me. And it is not because I don't love you but because I have an obligation to go be welcoming and friendly in particular to the new people. So don't take offense, but I got to go. That is all. <laughs>